worship in spirit means not only that something is going on inside, but that what is going on inside is sincere, it's authentic. If there's no sincerity, if if it's not genuine in your heart, if it's not the sincere expression of your heart, then it's not worship. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will continue his current series with part 14 of The Heart of Worship. Last time we began to examine what it means to worship in spirit as directed by Jesus in his encounter with the woman at the well as mentioned in John chapter 4. Tom presented four postures required to worship in spirit. Our participation must be internal. It must also be authentic. It must be passionate. And it must be active. And today, Tom will delve deeper into these four principles, examining what they look like in action and how you are to prepare your heart to worship internally, authentically, passionately, and actively. Keep all that in mind as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Third adjective we could use to help fill this out is our participation must be passionate. Passionate. True worship is never half-hearted. It is enthusiastic. It is fervent. It is earnest. It is animated. It is white-hot. It is wholehearted. In fact, God rebukes people for half-hearted dispassionate worship. Turn back to Malachi. You see this in his prophecy. The last book in the Old Testament, Malachi writes to rebuke a number of sins among the people, and he begins in chapter 1, verse 6, with the priests. And God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? You're not treating me with respect, God says. O priest who despise my name. And they respond, verse 6, what do you mean we're not respecting you, we're we're despising your name? Well, here's how, verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, wait a minute, what do you mean? How have we defiled you? Verse 8, when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? You remember there were restrictions on the kind of animal that was to be offered in sacrifice? Well, these people going through the motions, they were offering sacrifices, okay, but they didn't want to give their best, the ones without defect, because those could be sold for a higher price. So instead, they just offered God the, the lame and the blind and those that had problems. It's okay, God won't care. That's half-hearted worship. They were going through the motions, but they weren't passionate about offering to God the best that they could. You see it again down in verse 13. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Half-hearted worship, the prophet says, does not show respect for God. That's the bottom line. Half-hearted worship doesn't really show respect for God. You're not taking God seriously. You must, if it's going to be true worship, you must be passionate in worship. You say, well, what does that mean? 
Well, it means different things for different people. Your passionate may be different than my passionate. But let me just ask you a sort of question to clarify. What earthly thing excites and animates you the most? Let's think about that for a moment. Is it music? Is it football? Is it baseball? Is it golf? Lord help you if it's golf. (laughs) Whatever it is, whatever it is that you would say, this is the thing that excites or animates me the most. Think about how passionate you are about that thing when you're watching your favorite team win or when you're listening to your favorite song or when you're on the golf course. Whatever it is, whatever it is, earthly thing that gives you great passion that you're most passionate about, think about what that looks like. If you are any less engaged when you worship God, then it is not true worship. I'm not saying you have to do the same things. You don't have to jump on the bleachers like you, or in the pews like you do on the bleachers when you go to a football game. But I'm saying if your being is less engaged, then it's not true worship. You're more passionate about something else than you are about God. And God won't take that lightly, just as he didn't in Malachi's time. The final adjective that worship in spirit requires is active, active. As I've reminded us on many occasions, we live in a spectator culture. I think I've mentioned before, someone has defined football as 100,000 people desperately in need of exercise, watching 22 people desperately in need of rest. The average American spends six hours every day doing nothing but watching TV. Six hours every day practicing to be a better spectator. And he does that six days a week, and then he shows up on Sunday, sits in the pew, and immediately assumes that he's here yet again to be a spectator. That mindset is dead wrong. It's the opposite of true worship. I love this quote by Soren Kierkegaard. Listen carefully. People have the idea that the preacher is an actor on a stage and that they are the critics blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they are the actors on the stage. He is merely the prompter standing in the wings reminding them of their lines. Folks, that's my job. I'm not the actor and you the audience. You are the actors and God is the audience. I'm I'm merely here to help you remember your lines. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus puts it very bluntly. He says, we are to give in such a way, not that other people see, but so that the Father sees. We are to pray in such a way, not to care who else sees us or who else hears us, but so that the Father sees. You see, God is always the audience. In true worship, you and I are always active, we're always the actors, and God is always the audience. And if you approach worship any differently than that, even as you sit and hear the word taught right now, then it's not worship. True worship is never passive, it is always active. Now, let's answer a third question. What does it look like to worship in spirit? We've looked together at what does it mean. 
We've looked at what does it require to worship in spirit. Thirdly, what does it look like to worship in spirit? Now, I really want us to apply this truth to our worship. And it looks essentially the same whether we're talking about individual worship, our family worship, or the worship of the entire church together. Look at those four adjectives I just gave you again. Internal, authentic, passionate, and active. If you and I are going to worship in spirit then all four of those adjectives have to describe every element or component of our worship. Remember the elements of worship? We sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we read the Bible, we teach the Bible or hear it taught, and then when we gather together as the church, we give our offerings to see the true biblical worship supported and extended, and we see the Bible acted out in the ordinances, the Lord's table, and baptism. So let's just work our way through a couple of those just as examples. Let's think for a moment about singing. Singing is an act of worship. We sing the Bible. That is, we sing truth rooted in the truth of Scripture. We sing it to God. If your, thing, if your singing rather is going to be in spirit, then it will be internal. It will be authentic. It will be passionate. And it will be active. That means that more is happening when you're singing than just moving your lips. It means your heart will be engaged and participating. And you will be sincere and authentic instead of hypocritical. That means you really will be singing from your heart to the Lord. And you certainly won't stand there not singing at all. Worship is active. It's participating. You say, well, you know, I can't sing. Well, neither can Sanjaya, and look where it got him. <laughs> Listen, when you get to heaven... God's not going to say, you know, you really shouldn't have sung. You have such a terrible voice. You should have just stayed quiet. No. We are to sing to the Lord. And to worship God actively, internally, passionately means that we sing. And by the way, when we sing passionately, it means that when we sing, we don't sing just a few decibels above lip syncing. We sing out. We're passionate. We sing out with our hearts. Not so that our neighbor hears us, not so that we appear more spiritual, but so that God is pleased that we're singing with our whole being unto him. This is what it means to worship in spirit. We can use the same adjectives to describe our worship in prayer. Prayer that's offered in spirit is internal, it's authentic, it's passionate, and it's active. If you're praying in spirit, you're praying in your heart, really, with the person who leads. As I lead in prayer in the services, you're really praying with me in your heart. I'm not the actor. You're not listening to me. Well, that was a great prayer this morning. Or, you know, that was a dog. You're not, in, you're not sitting there judging my prayers. You're supposed to be praying with me. If you're praying with others, and you're the one praying... You don't pray so they'll hear you. You don't pray so they'll be impressed with how glib you are. If you're praying with others, it's not to be heard by them. Also, if you're praying in spirit, you're passionate about it. You're actively participating in your heart. Now, folks, those same four adjectives can be applied to all the legitimate expressions of worship and to every venue, whether you're worshiping privately, individually, whether you're worshiping as a family, or whether you're worshiping corp corporately. True worship in spirit means those things. 
That's what it looks like. Now, that brings us to a fourth question. What about, and this one is related, it comes up, what about physical displays in worship? I'm treading now where angels fear to tread. Since our whole being is to be engaged, what about some of the common and popular physical displays? Are they permitted here at Countryside Bible Church? Well, the key thing to remember is that because God has determined what is acceptable to him in worship, we must always ask, does Scripture prescribe it as a legitimate expression of worship? That means such displays as fainting or being slain in the spirit or yelling or barking or a number of other things that go on are not prescribed by the word, so they will not be allowed here, period, end of story. But what about the three popular physical displays that that are mentioned in Scripture? Namely, dancing, clapping, and lifting up the hands. Let me briefly comment on each of those. What about dancing before the Lord? Well, the Old Testament does mention people dancing before the Lord on a couple of occasions, apparently with the Lord's approval. In Exodus 15, verse 20, Miriam, the sister of Moses, and the women of Israel danced before the Lord. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 14, David, you remember the most famous incident, danced before the Lord. And in Psalm 30, verse 11, David alludes to it by saying that God has turned his spirit of mourning into dancing. But only in two Old Testament passages does dancing seem to be prescribed or commanded. Turn to Psalm 149. Psalm 149 and verse 2. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. And again in in Psalm 150, verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4, praise him with timbrel and dancing. Now, a couple of considerations on this issue. First of all, you have to understand that this was part of the culture of Israel, to dance at joyous occasions. You see it, by the way, in the Old Testament on other occasions that had nothing to do with the worship of God. This was part of their culture. So the application for us may be an attitude rather than an activity, just as we're told, for example, to rip our clothes and sit in sackcloth and ashes. The point is not that we are to physically do those things. Those things are not part of our culture, but rather... We are to have the spirit that accompanies ripping our clothes and sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It may be that that's the application of this idea of dancing. A second consideration is that the religious dance of the Israelites was much different than the spirit dancing typically done today in some churches. It was a very active twirling and leaping by members of the same sex. It had a lot more in common with the Cossack dance than with ballet. It was definitely not characterized by sensuous movements. But that brings me to the third issue. The key thing to remember is that dancing is not prescribed for corporate worship, nor is it ever practiced as part of the mandated corporate worship either of Israel or of the church in the New Testament. That's issue number one. Now, let's go to issue number two. What about clapping? Again, clapping was part of the Old Testament worship. For example, um, 
it was part of the culture as well, by the way. That's not new with us. In, in 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 12, when little Joash is anointed king, the people clap. But to God, we see it in passages like Psalm 47, Psalm 47 and verse 1, where we read, O clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with a voice of joy. Clapping is really an expression of joy. It's an affirmation. Now, in terms of our church and the corporate worship together, again, the elders have discussed this issue, and we all agree that it's okay for you to clap. It's okay for you not to clap. But when we do clap, it should never be primarily about rewarding the musician for a job well done. But rather, it should be an affirmation of the message of the song or the goodness of God in providing music for us all to enjoy. In other words, the focus of our clapping should be God and not primarily the human people. Of course, there's always an element of that. I think it's hard for us to divorce the two. But primarily, it ought to be about God. That's what should be in our heart. It's a kind of amen, if you will. It's an affirmation. Let me also say practically that clapping in the church should fit the occasion. The choir has just ended a quiet, meditative piece, then it doesn't really fit to clap. While I'm on this topic, can I tell you something that really bugs me? If we're going to clap, let's clap. Let's not give the polite golf clap. Good job. Well done. Now, one final common physical display that we need to talk about, and in some ways the most controversial, what about lifting hands in worship? In Scripture, we often see men lifting up their hands in worship. On a few occasions, they do it in the praise of God. For example, Nehemiah 8.6 says, Ezra blessed the great God, and all the people answered amen and amen while lifting up their hands. In Psalm 63, verse 4, we read, I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Psalm 134, verse 2, lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. So there are occasions, three of them in the Old Testament, when lifting the hands was associated with the praise of God. More commonly, more frequently, the hands are lifted in prayer. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22, we read of Solomon spreading out his hands toward heaven to pray. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 13, recording the same event, we're, we're told that Solomon kneeled on his knees and spread out his hands toward heaven to pray. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, Ezra does the same thing. The psalmist talks about this thing. In Psalm 28, verse 2, in Psalm 88, verse 9, 141, 2, and 143, 6. When you come to the New Testament, you see it in the writings of Paul. In 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, obviously, the focus there is on the fact that they're to pray in holiness, but you still have the lifting up of the hands. Now, you might ask yourself, why would we or anyone, why did they in the Old Testament times and even the New Testament lift up their hands while in praise or prayer? Well, I think we get a hint of that in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 41. We read this, we lift up our heart 
and hands toward God in heaven. It is a physical picture, if you will, of the spiritual reality that we're addressing God. It is a reminder that we are addressing God in our hearts and with our voices. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, this was a cultural thing. Well, it wasn't merely a cultural thing. Philip Schaff, in his excellent History of the Christian Church, writes of prayer even in the second century. The usual posture in prayer was standing with outstretched arms in Oriental or Asian fashion. And if you've ever peeked while I'm praying, I won't ask for a show of hands. I do this all the time, not because I plan to do it. It's just natural for me. I talk with my hands, particularly when I'm passionate about something. So when I'm talking to God, my hands are moving. Lifting the hands is a way of drawing toward God as the object of our worship. Now, one final question that we need to ask, and then we'll be done. Very quickly, how can we prepare to worship in spirit? How can we prepare to worship internally, authentically, passionately, and actively? Number one, God must change your heart. God must change your heart. You're going to worship in spirit. God has to first change your heart. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you can't mouth the words. What it means is you cannot express them as the sincere expression of worship without the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to worship in spirit, you have to have a different heart. And only God can do that. And he'll do that today if you're willing to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He'll he'll make you a worshiper. Number two, as a believer, you must confess your sin. If you're going to prepare to worship in spirit, you have to confess your sin. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So in the worship of prayer, the Lord won't hear. And there's every reason to believe that in the rest of the expressions of worship, he won't hear either if I have not confessed my sin to him. You want to worship God? Then start as a believer by confessing your sin. Number three, Restore any broken relationships. You want to worship in spirit, you've got to start here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus says, If you are presenting your offering at the altar, that's an act of worship, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, there's a problem between you and a brother, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Don't worship God while there are things between you and other brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, this is especially true of marriage. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Don't for a moment think you're really worshiping God here this morning if there are issues between you and other people. You have to deal with that before God will accept your worship. And number four and finally, choose to worship. In the end, worship is a response to God, but it is also an act of the will. I won't take time to turn there, but I love the verse in Luke 10 where Jesus is interacting with Martha and Mary, you remember? 
And Jesus says this in verse 42, Martha, only one thing is necessary. And in the context, he's talking about worship. For Mary has chosen, and the Greek word's a very strong word for selecting. Mary has selected the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You have to decide, am I really going to do this? Am I going to worship God like this in spirit and in truth? You better, because it's what God saved you for. Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 14 of The Heart of Worship. Join us next time for part 15. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.